Secret planes, trains, buses, and on foot. There isn't a crisis at our southern border. There's an all-out invasion. Then from one disaster to another, a look back at the brutally botched Afghanistan withdrawal one year later, ex-FBI agent, counterterrorism expert, and founder of Understanding the Threat, John Guandolo joins me for a deep dive into the inner workings of the FBI, the Afghanistan catastrophe, the international threats we face, and the wolves in sheep's clothing hidden in plain sight. Then to round it all out, you know, I have some final thoughts. Today we aren't just going to unmask the threats, we're going to understand them too. Let's go. Those that have been paying a lick of attention know that footage and those images are routine, daily, and worsening. Our border isn't a border. Hell, it's less orderly patrolled and monitored than the entrance of a frickin' Six Flags. And that's not because our Border Patrol agents don't want to do their jobs. It's because they've been hamstrung by an administration that quite frankly won't let them and doesn't give a damn. Oh, and to ice this crap cake, when border state governors try to sound the alarm, make a point, and give these Democrats a taste of their own medicine, blue city mayors take that medicine and those lemons and turn it into a taxpayer-funded room service cocktail, for God's sake. Yeah, the Roe NYC will now be turned into a haven for illegals. That's a four-star hotel in Times Square for those who aren't familiar. Most middle-class tourists can't afford that kind of accommodation, let alone any member of the American homeless population. Does it not seem a little ass backwards and wrong that we have homeless veterans sleeping on our streets, along our freeways, interstates, and everywhere in between? And meanwhile, illegals are being put up in four-star hotels in the middle of Times Square? Here's the cold, hard truth. We owe illegals nothing, especially as Americans are suffering. And who wins in all of this? It's not legal immigrants or the American citizens footing the bill. It's not even the migrants themselves living in the shadows, even if it is a four-star hotel accommodation, is not the American dream. No, the winner is the criminal organizations and cartels who are not only getting a cut to usher these migrants on through, but also making a killing off killing with drugs, contraband, and human trafficking enterprises they operate. Democrats need to answer for all of this. This is a humanitarian crisis, a national security threat, and a slap in the face, and we need to stop turning the other cheek. But still ahead, he served in the Marine Corps. The FBI consulted our nation's leaders on matters of national security and counterterrorism. John Guandola joins me to break down the threats we face here and abroad. Don't miss it. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of my next guest credential list. He served as an officer in the Marine Corps, a combat diver, a military freefall parachutist, and is a graduate of the U.S. Army Ranger School. From there, he continued to serve his country in the FBI, serving as FBI liaison to the U.S. Capitol Police, investigating threats on high-level government officials. But he wasn't done yet. Post 9-11, he began an assignment to the Counterterrorism Division of the FBI's Washington field office, developing an expertise in the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic doctrine, the global Islamic movement, and terrorist organizations including Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and others. In 2006, Mr. Guandolo was designated a subject matter expert by FBI headquarters and created and implemented the FBI's first counterterrorism training program focused on the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamic doctrine, and the global Islamic movement. While in the FBI, he also received two United States Attorney's Awards for investigative excellence. He served on the FBI's Washington Field Office SWAT team for over nine years and its senior team leader for three of those years. 
Currently, Mr. Guandolo advises governments, the United States, and others on matters related to national security, specifically the threat from the global Islamic movement. He actively briefs and teaches members of Congress, senior military officials, police, the intelligence community, key community leaders, and others. He's also the author of three books, which focus primarily on the threat of Islamic extremism here and abroad. So to say my next guest knows a thing or two about a thing or two is the understatement of the year. Joining me now is the man with all the accolades and the founder of Understanding the Threat and my personal friend from all the way back in my One America days, John Guandolo. John, it is so great to be reunited with you. Uh, it's great to be on with you, Tommy. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Listen, I know you're an expert in damn near everything. So I have a lot of things to ask, but I want to start because we are looking back a year later after that disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. And to let you know my top line thoughts on it, I think we needed to get the heck out. We didn't need to get the heck out like that. Uh, our commander in chief failed uh, dismally, in my opinion. But I want to know what you thought about all that and looking back a year after. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share on this. I think my opinion today is the same as it was uh, when America left Afghanistan in the way we did. Uh, I wrote about it, spoke about it at the time, and I very little has really changed in my mind. And that is, number one, here we are in the summer of 2022, and the U.S. government still has not identified the threats that uh, attacked us on 9-11. We identify groups, we identify individuals, but we don't actually look at the entire threat uh, that we're dealing with in Africa, Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, elsewhere, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. Um, we're not looking at it from a strategic perspective, number one. Number two, I agree with you. I don't think you should continue fighting a war and sacrificing American blood and treasure when you haven't identified who the enemy is. Um, our policy going back to right after 9-11 uh, reflects no understanding of the threat and no desire to deal with uh, the way the threat manifests that same threat, uh, the global Islamic movement here in the United States. And it's much more dangerous uh, here inside the continental United States and within all 50 states, um, even than it was in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I think um, I'm glad we uh, you know, brought our troops home. Uh, now, of course, the way we did it and what was revealed about our general officers uh, should be uh, shocking to most Americans, which is, you know, we had general officers, three and four star generals telling us that the, the Taliban was our security. Right. And we could trust them in Afghanistan. That's uh, that's not only stupid and foolish, it's criminally negligent. And I think the blood of the people that were killed over there, especially during our withdrawal, are directly on the, the combatant commanders that were in charge. Another thing that really disturbed me when all this was happening, and there were a lot of Republicans were screaming this from the rooftops a year ago to bring over all of these refugees from Afghanistan. And I said, wait a second, um, if I'm familiar at all with our vetting process under the Biden administration at our southern border, it doesn't go well. So bringing over all these people that we don't know really who they are, why they want to come here and resettling them in the United States, that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Not because I didn't want to help people, but because I've had a lot of lessons from people like you and others 
leaders that say, listen, you have to be careful when you're bringing people over from the Middle East. You don't know what their intentions are, and we have a right to know that. Did that bother you? I'm sure it did, but I want your insight on it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, first of all, let's let's just in a vacuum, let's look at this. You cannot vet Afghanis. They cannot be vetted. There is no infrastructure to do it. So that's the first thing. Most people who live in Afghanistan do not know their own birth dates. Um, and so the, the idea that we're somehow going to vet them uh, is just nonsense. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two, and I, I'll go back uh, several months ago, we were briefing a, a governor um, and we put together this briefing booklet and, and he had asked me to come in and speak about the vetting because they had, you know, thousands of uh, refugees from Afghanistan. And I'll use refugees in quotes because they don't meet the legal definition of refugee. But let's just let's not let the law get in the way and the international definition of a refugee get in the way of a good story. But I showed him. Let's look at some people uh, that we vetted. Abdurrahman Alamudi was the Islamic advisor to President Clinton, Vice President Gore for their, their terms in office. And he was an Al-Qaeda financier who was sentenced to 23 years in prison in uh, 2003. Um, so that's who he is. And he got vetted by the Secret Service and the FBI. Um, Gumarad Kalimov was an ISIS commander who was trained by the State Department five times in weapons and tactics, including training in, inside the United States. And when this was brought to the attention of the State Department, they literally defended themselves saying, hey, we vetted him. So it's not our fault. Well, obviously your, your vetting system sucks because you let a, an ISIS commander get trained by the State Department. And the examples of this are endless inside our system. Mr. Biden just made Mohammed Majid the, uh, a commissioner on the uh, International Commission for Religious Freedom. Mohammed Majid was the vice president and the president of the Islamic Society of North America, which the Department of Justice identified the Islamic Society of North America in the largest terrorism financing trial in American history, which was adjudicated in Dallas, Texas, 2008, Holy Land Foundation trial. ISNA is identified as a Muslim Brotherhood organization that sent money directly to Hamas leaders and organizations overseas. And that's so. Our ability to vet easily identifiable jihadis, terrorists, uh, is zero. We can't tell friend from foe. So trying to vet, and again, I'll put that in air quotes, uh, refugees, again in air quotes, from Afghanistan, it's a non-starter. I want to move on to news that broke last week that's really turned the world upside down, and that was the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. Now, I know that you proudly served in the FBI. I know that you work with many people that were in the FBI, still are in the FBI, and there's been a lot of commentary about those on the Trump side threatening those in the FBI or talking about federal law enforcement and putting them in a bad light. And of course, we don't condone any threats of violence or any behavior like that, but what do you think happened there? And do you think those agents acted appropriately? And even though it was, of course, Merrick Garland and others, do they hold some responsibility for what happened? And in your eyes, was it justified what they did? 
Right. Well, so there, there, this is a uh, really peeling back the layers of an onion here, but uh, straight straight to the point. When you look at uh, who's driving this train, there there has now been a a uh, I'm just going to say for purposes of this discussion a six to seven year very clear history and and decades worth of examples, but in the last six to seven years, where we know the people behind this. Uh, in this administration have a long history of absolutely lying for the sole purpose of gaining control of the state and power. That's what this is all about. Uh, the entire, quote, Russia collusion with Mr. Trump, we now know, and you've talked about it quite eloquently over the years, uh, that was not only a lie. Uh, we know that all kinds of people on that side were lying in public and then testifying privately the exact opposite of what they were saying publicly because they didn't want to go to jail for perjury because they knew the truth, but they publicly were saying there's rush collusion. We got all this evidence and they, there is no evidence. As a matter of fact, if anybody's colluding with our adversaries, it was Mrs. Clinton uh, and, and members of the Democratic leadership and others. So you, you have that. You've got um, the entire multiple year assault on American cities by uh, the Chinese communist organization, Black Lives Matter, the communist organization Antifa, and uh, other communist entities like Democratic Socialist America, uh, Communist Party USA, and many others working in conjunction at the ground level with Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, uh, and others. Um, and no nothing done there when people literally were assassinated, you know, I don't know the total price tag, but hundreds of millions, if not more dollars of damage. Uh, and I know that that number was was rising rapidly. I haven't seen the final numbers. And yet no response. But John, when, level when we look at what happened, and I want to get your perspective as someone who was in the FBI, because what they're saying is, listen, he had documents. They tried to say that he had nuclear codes that they needed to get a hold of. It was classified information, maybe something for the National Archives. In your experience and your work at the FBI, was that standard operating procedure and standard protocol to raid a former president's home looking for that kind of material and then also keep his attorney out in the parking lot from observing what happened? Is that standard procedure of what the FBI did when you were serving no, it, in that agency? No, it is not. And and what I think is important to keep, uh, what's important to keep in mind is this has never happened in American history where you have literally the FBI agents going to Mar-a-Lago, meeting with the, Mr. Trump or at least his representatives, looking at where these things were stored, how they were stored, talking about it. And then instead of coming back in the same relational way and saying, hey, you know, we hear the concerns we have, do this, you know, DOJ attorney to uh, your attorney. They conduct a, a raid the way the way they did. And based on what is being reported and how the search was conducted, um, no, this is this looks like political intimidation. It looks to me like the kind of stuff that you would expect in a Stalinist regime. And I think based on what we know is factual and evidentiary, again, over the last six months, six years of what these folks have done, 
this is just that. Now, to look forward, I would say what I would expect them to do um, is number one, I would expect, as I wrote about this not too long ago and, and mentioned it in an, another interview, I would not be surprised if in the next 90 days, there was some legal action, criminal legal action taken against Hunter Biden. And again, then that uh, would give them the facade of being able to say, you see, we're, we're judicious, when in fact, um, we've seen this coming for a while. I think there's no getting around the, the amount of evidence against Hunter Biden is so great. Now, of course, it was very significant against Mrs. Clinton, and she was never indicted, uh, and others at high government level. But that being said, I think um, you will see that, and that'll probably allow them to do other things. Uh, and I think we'll see a transition of power at the higher, highest levels of government uh, following that in order to allow them to maintain power, because I think they realize Mr. Biden either is unelectable or won't make. Um, so that's that. And the last thing I want to say about this, uh, Tommy, is I want your viewers to really hear this. You know, James Comey admitted when he was leaving his position as the U.S. attorney in, in New York City, Southern District in New York, he gave an interview in 2003 to New York Magazine where he said, and I quote, I was a communist. And then to paraphrase, uh, not sure where I am politically right now. Now, in a world where the federal government functions, they would have put the brakes on right there and said, well, we're not sure you should go to your next place, which he was already uh, named to be the next number two of the Department of Justice, the Deputy Attorney General. He certainly, if we had a functioning federal government, would have never been elevated to the position of FBI director. I share this with your viewers so they understand the fact that a guy like that was elevated, a guy who admitted he was a communist, as the gets elevated to the FBI director, uh, that doesn't happen if you have a government that's not corrupt. This government is corrupted. The bureaucracy is completely corrupted. And the key components of the federal government are being controlled by adversaries of the Republican liberty. And that's really important, I believe, for your for your viewers to, to understand. Well, there's so much to peel back here and there's so much that the average American watches and listens to and they don't understand it. But we know that there's been an attempt to take down Trump since he came down the escalator, maybe even prior to that, as soon as he became a Republican and he posed a threat. But I do want to ask you about January 6th, because this kind of all comes together. When you look at the raid, I think that they wanted the January 6th hearing to be their kill shot in a Donald Trump. Of course, it wasn't that. But looking back at January 6th, I know that you have some experience with that, and you can have some you know, insight you can share with us about what actually happened that day and how you saw it from your perspective. Yes. So I was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I was actually there. I wasn't going to go but a pastor in Dallas invited me and uh, Michelle Bachman, who's on our board at understanding the threat um, was going to be there. And it was set up by people that I used to work with in Washington, DC, really good folks. And they set up this uh, basically a time, a permitted space right on the grass, right in front of the Capitol to pray and to, uh, um, really unite uh, in prayer for the nation and for peace. And so I went and I thought it was great. And I 
did some, uh, you know, live streaming from there and did a video and, and put that out. And um, next thing I know, um, the first time I had to fly after that, uh, besides the fact on social media, of course, I was lumped in with uh, uh, falsely, you know, people making all kinds of accusations just because I was in Washington, D.C. And starting in February, when I flew uh, from Dallas to, to North Carolina, um, I got stopped. And uh, now I'm still a sworn deputy. I'm an auxiliary deputy in Virginia. And I was traveling and I got the full TSA mantra, the complete search of all my stuff, me personally, patted down everything. And I just thought, okay, maybe it's a you know, one-time deal. 100% of my flights from that time until two weeks ago um, have been that way. So I normally have to leave uh, three plus hours when I traveled because it normally took me 90 minutes to two hours to get through security. Um, and there was a period of about three months, uh, about April, May, and June of this year, where every gate that I went to, TSA would set up security and they would do spot checks on everyone. And yet 100% of the time I got chosen. Uh, and then I made a video, uh, a flight I was on about six weeks ago. Um, and, you know, the lady from TSA, the supervisor told me it was random. I'm like, really random? I just counted like, I don't know, 100 people walked by. You stopped four and I'm one of the four again. Does that sound random? Like it's 100% of the time, it's not random. And then, of course, a few weeks ago, I got interviewed finally by the FBI. Um, and, of course, they wanted to make sure I'm not some sort of a violent extremist or calling for the overthrow of the United States government, which is absurd. That's that. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, after uh, now that I've been interviewed and they apparently uh, or at least trying to give me the impression they're not looking at me anymore, I can flew for the first time uh, without being molested by uh, by TSA. But this is the world we live in. Um, and this this is, uh, I think this is just the beginning. And the fact that they can do this to Mr. Trump should make every American pause about what they can do to anybody who speaks truth about our Constitution, about our founding principles, and about uh, our authority as citizens in this country. But from your perspective, you obviously weren't involved in, in any of the busing into the Capitol or anything like that. But being there that day, did anything seem amiss to you as far as how they had secured that, how well they had secured it, anybody that was being let in? I mean, there's a lot of stories out there and a lot of it's passed off as conspiracy, but with everything going on, it's hard to know what really happened. Yeah, that's a great question, Tommy. I spent a good portion of the day um, with a friend of mine who's still active in the FBI, and we met another friend of ours in the FBI, spent a lot of the time with them. And as we were standing next to each other watching, we literally like guys would walk by us. We're like, there's Antifa, there's Antifa, there's Antifa. And at one point, and I've never seen this uh, mentioned by the media, a red star cluster, like a military red star cluster went up right over where we were. Somebody fired it. And we looked at each other because this FBI agent I was with is also a Marine. And, um, we said, I'm not sure what's going to happen right now, but but nothing good. And so there was a lot going on that didn't look right. And when you now look at the facts, 
you have people we watched as people walked up the steps of the Capitol, talked to Capitol Police officers. The officers stepped aside and waved them up the steps. Guys, and I saw this myself and I filmed it, but there's plenty of footage of it out there. Um, then Capitol Police at the top of the steps who literally either opened the door or stepped back and like waved the guys in and they went in. And now we're saying that's some kind of act of insurrection. Well, you can't have a true armed insurrection if, if people aren't armed. Uh, so legally speaking, this is nonsense. This is a color revolution. Uh, and actually, Chris Bur Burgard was uh, was in South America, Central America, when, uh, you know, in Honduras for the for the color revolution there and filmed that and compared what he saw on January 6th with that. I think Capital Punishment is a great film, and I would encourage people to, to watch it because it's powerful. But it's exactly what you say. And the fact that nobody has been charged with sedition, treason, insurrection uh, in, in any of these cases, but they've been charged with trespassing, uh, misdemeanor, property destruction, things like that. This is this is asinine. This is craziness, but it's dangerous. There's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I'm going to have to wait until you're in Nashville. I know that you got to run, but thank you for giving us all that information. And I would encourage everyone to check out Understanding the Threat. I've been following you guys for years. A lot of important information about the threats that we face. And like you say, truly understanding them, because it's not enough just to read about them or hear about them on the news. It's actually a deep understanding of what's going on. So, John, always appreciate seeing you, and thank you so much. Thank you, and I encourage people. Go to understandthreat.com to learn more. But thanks as always for having me. Thanks so much, John. All right, don't forget, guys, our show streams on outkick.com. We have all the exclusive content, articles, and special footage there. So make sure that you're streaming us on outkick.com. But up next, in a primary that shocked absolutely no one, Wyoming broke up with our favorite rhino, Liz Cheney. And I have some final thoughts. Liz Cheney is ousted from political power in the country, we have a saying, mess with the bull, you're going to get the horns. And that's exactly what Liz did and exactly what she got. Needless to say, her rodeo is over. It's time for final thoughts. Today, we celebrate the political funeral of our favorite queen of the rhinos, Liz Cheney, who was defeated in Wyoming's primary yesterday and by a lot. Was Liz Cheney always a rhino? Probably. Did it become overwhelmingly apparent when Donald Trump drained the swamp just enough to see her floating in it? Hell to the yes. Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick, was elected in 2016 to serve as Wyoming's lone member of Congress. Now, she isn't from Wyoming. She's from Madison, Wisconsin, and spent her formative years watching her Papa Dick start wars and fund the almighty military-industrial complex. But outside of being a Cheney, she hasn't done much of anything to gain notoriety until she decided to make it her mission, along with her small herd of rhinos, to go after Donald Trump and the entire mega movement. Bad move, Liz. Bad move. I guess she's so used to the perks of nepotism and the rule book of the swamp, she forgot she represents, represented Wyoming, a state Donald Trump won in the last election. But the jig is all the way up because she lost her primary yesterday by nearly 64,000 votes to Trump-endorsed candidate Harriet Hagman, who is not only an actual conservative, but actually from Wyoming. But speaking of people who are not from Wyoming, I guess this means Kevin Costner will not be rejoicing today, though his Yellowstone character John Dutton certainly would be. Listen, 
I don't just dislike Liz Cheney for her bitter vendetta and witch hunt against Trump. In fact, I'll give her and the rest of her band of never-Trumpers some credit for at least being honest about it. Even as a Trump supporter, I don't blindly defend Trump like he's some kind of a god, a savior, or a messiah. He's not. But he was a fantastic president who remembered the forgotten Americans, the kind of people that live in Wyoming. And I'm not talking about in a second home during the summer or ski season. Real heartland folks. They matter to Trump. So here's the deal. As someone from the neighboring and very similar state of South Dakota, I can tell you that her brand of leadership isn't a match for Wyoming, which is why she's now out of a job. Oh, and speaking of jobs, how is it that Liz entered Congress with an already hefty net worth of about $7 million, but is now, as estimated by the Center for Responsive Politics, worth up to $44 million as of 2020? That's nearly a 600% increase in just a few years in Congress. So that's quite the jump for someone who makes $174K a year as a member of Congress. Weird stuff, Liz. Weird stuff. But even after her dismal loss in the primary, there are still plenty of people rumbling about a Cheney 2024 presidential comeback to which I say LOL and fat freaking chance. But in her concession speech last night, Liz even tried to resurrect herself by comparing herself to Abe Lincoln of all people. The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of history. No, Liz, you're not Abraham Lincoln, but you sure do sound like someone else we know. Mm. Enjoy the sour grapes and bye-bye, Liz. It's been real fun. And those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.